Let's start the show by talking about my sponsor, Paloma Verde, and their new website, PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check them out for all of your CBD needs. They've got the gummies, tinctures, the salves. So if you're needing anything to maybe chill you out, something to help you get mellowed out, something for your joint pain and stiffness, go over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and give them a check out. Carlos and Vanessa are awesome people. They run a great company. And if you enter the promo code FACTS at checkout, you'll get 25% off your order. Plus, any order over $75, you get free shipping. So, I don't know what you're waiting for. Head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check them out. Let's start the show. This episode will be completely taken out of context. Welcome to the Fact Check This podcast. So, I appreciate you uh, agreeing to come on. I uh, I really wanted to kind of touch base with you and talk about. <laughs> Sorry, there's a dog. This okay, he's leaving now. Good. Sorry about that. He's very excited. I just got home visiting my parents after a long trip, and the dog's very excited. So, it's that's funny. Hours. Uh, I'll record like solo episodes and stuff, and I'll be in here. And if I leave the door open. She comes running in immediately. It's like as soon as she hears me talking and, and working on stuff, she just comes running in and has to see what's going on. She's uh, she's always excited and wants to help. Yep, yep, yep. Well, good. I'm glad uh, glad we can accommodate that as well. <laughs> so, so I wanted to get you on. Um, I know. So, are you a Republican or? I know. You yeah. Know. So I, I'm the Republican state representative for Iowa House District 82. I'm in my third year um, and I've been a Republican since Ron Paul's 2007, 2008 Iowa caucus campaign and kind of stuck around on an amateur semi-professional basis for a number of years. And then naturally, you know, find yourself in this position. And um, so I first ran for this office in 2014 and lost. And then uh and then, yeah, was able to take advantage of an opportunity in 2018 and kind of found a groove and then was able to, I guess, adopt some outspoken political leadership that's been noticed in a variety of ways and have been able to make some progress on some key issues and stake out some ground. And, and uh, yeah, it's been a very fun, challenging experience, but very, very rewarding as well. No doubt. So, so that was kind of what I wanted to, to focus on. I'm in Indiana, which is... Uh, probably like most of you know the midwest and bible belt type of states it's very heavily republican and even trying to like, we had a uh, we had a really good governor's race in 2020 the the indiana uh, libertarian party candidate did better than any governor uh that i'm aware of in the country as far as a libertarian candidate goes and even with that it was like 13 percent of the vote or something but it was a really good it was a really good turnout but what i ran into a lot uh in trying to sell some of the messaging and stuff because he was highly anti anti mask mandate anti uh lockdown like he he ran on all the important topics that you really want to see a good candidate run on, especially one that's all about freedom and liberty, like, uh, you know, people who lean libertarian are, whether you're in the GOP or the libertarian party, like, those are the, the ideas that you want to promote. 
and we would get pushback from like really hardcore right wingers on what seemed like basic ideas of freedom and liberty that that they should be behind because uh i don't, I don't know it just i'm not sure why why there's such a hardcore pushback so i wanted to talk to you about like what's some of the things that you've been able to utilize in promoting a message of liberty to actually get through to to people and and have success uh both in getting elected and also beyond that like in in because i know you've had some success in getting some legislation at least looked at and if not passed yeah so you hit on a couple different moving pieces and they're all kind of important i think the first thing i want to just say is that like these campaigns matter and then candidates matter and then the messaging that's presented to the public really matters so you know, in theory, hopefully what you're accomplishing by, you know, supporting a liberty candidate or having a libertarian with a good platform is that you're, you know, competing for the voters that believe in that and then maybe depriving another candidate of votes that they would need to, you know, achieve an electoral success or whatever. And so I think in theory, most third party activism is still kind of with the intention to influence one of the major parties in one direction or another um in theory and i know like i think the indiana republican governor i don't even know the guy's name off the top of my head but from what i've gathered you guys have a lot of problems over there and um, the republican party you know in a lot of these bigger states like ohio definitely stands out as one but indiana as well is is pretty corrupt and you know i know mike pence came from indiana and, and got on the national scene and he's been pretty much good for nothing and pretty worthless on most anything um so, yeah, it's just tough that each state has its own kind of swamp as well um, that encompasses both major parties. Usually, basically, the way politics works is there's a kind of tightly knit group of financiers that, and special interests that are then connected to, you know, hold leverage over these very various candidates by becoming their, you know, campaign consultants or financial advisors and then holding the purse strings or whatever, and are able to enormous or leverage a lot of enormous power, you know, just by funneling donations or whatever and being in a position to say that, oh, if you do this sort of thing, it's going to be a lot harder for me to raise money for you. You know, those kinds of like snide kind of comments of like, you know, anyway, it's just, it is just a very swampy tight knit game. And that's essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to do divorce the political leader from the special interests and get them more connected to the people. Um, and obviously I think that's probably easier in less populous states like Iowa. Um, I think that's really one of the advantages of the Iowa caucus and the Ron Paul campaign in particular is that because there was so much effort in Iowa through the Ron Paul caucus cycles, two of them, and then to a lesser extent Rand, like there was an emphasis on getting involved in the Republican party filling in a lot of like-minded people from the grassroots level to the state convention on up. And um, so it's been a more kind of fleshed out or it's been a, a dynamic that's been more invested in Iowa in particular. And so I think that's why I've been able to find, you know, a niche of success within the Iowa Republican party, because these were seeds we planted 10 years ago. Um, so yeah, obviously every state's going to be a little bit different. Um, Texas is kind of an interesting example because their governor wasn't acting right either, but then he got two or several kind of seemingly credible primary challenges that would be enough to at least be a nuisance and very annoying. 
Um, and then some people credit that for some better governing decisions. So it's definitely clear. I guess that's what I'm kind of, you know, trying to just demonstrate is that, you know, these campaigns and these candidates and the way the electoral cycles are influenced, like it does matter in effect policy, sometimes in a pretty, you know, immediate way. Um, as far as like Indiana, from what I know, I know there's at least a handful of legislators that are pretty good and solid or liberty leaning. And I know we had some at the Hazlitt Coalition. And so definitely working with them, because I think that one of the most difficult things is like figuring out what's going on and kind of just being like an observer and like observing the battlefield, so to speak. So like your inside guy or, or the people who, you know, if you're an elected representative, hopefully that's a professional full-time position basically where, you know, that's your job to inform the people of what's going on in politics, inform the people, here are the threats of liberty, here's where we need to mobilize and address and draw attention. Um, you know, a lot of politics is just really paying attention to certain things, right? Like harnessing the collective attention and getting some sort of initiative. Um, you know, certainly politicians are always selling vision and getting people to buy into their vision of leadership and that sort of thing. So um, like it's like for me as a politician, my work is basically in communicating with people, you know, working the phone, writing emails, making sure my campaign pieces are out and then I'm advertising and staying connected. Like it's basically just glorified PR and just, you know, communication, you know, like my, if I'm working hard, I'm probably on the phone for like five or six or eight hours a day or something. And like, that's what I look like, you know, working It's just being on the phone, talking to people. Um, so I kind of forgot the actual intent of your question. I think it's basically how do you carve out and kind of get a beachhead for yourself in a way that influences things. Um, you know, I started out as a party activist. So, you know, like I said, we did the caucus to convention cycle and early on, like it was 2008 under the John McCain days and just like showing up and being kind of a nuisance and kind of being that conscious and even just showing up and like, yeah, I'm not supporting McCain. Um, like, obviously, that's very politically inflammatory, but it is just kind of interesting. You get to hold that space and kind of represent that. And then so I served in various party positions. I remember I was elected like the, the state rules committee. And then I ran for delegate for conventions and I lost. And I became like a after I lost in 2014, I became the chairman of, of the Jefferson County GOP, which was just an awful. I mean, I, I have really bad memory of it because it is like you know, some of these party positions are kind of pointless and they are very difficult and tedious. And yeah, you're not going to get a lot of things done, but like it still is. Oh, this is probably the most important thing. I should I should have led with this. Just how important long term relationships are. And that's basically all government is, is I mean, politics is just basically the given arrangement and relationship of various power structures in any particular moment in time. And, you know, it can be very fluid and, it, and you know, and, and it needs to be supported by the people. So, like, you know, my position as state representative is basically I'm just investing in and managing a bunch of various relationships, the strongest of which will be long term relationships and then just managing those over a multitude of different issues and, and periods of time to, you know, make sure those relationships have enough support when election time comes around. And thankfully, you know, in my two previous elections, I had just enough relationships or, and so like, that's like, even like this term political capital, what does political capital mean? Political capital means that I can call on someone. Well, in, in one way to define it is like in my job in the house, if I vote on an amendment or force a vote on an amendment, how many people are going to vote with me? You know, so that's an interesting way to measure political capital. Um, otherwise, it's just like, 
you know, having these relationships to cash in on and like having people that if I need help, whether that's, you know, I don't know, reaching out, just anything it could be, but just that, yeah, when I pick up the phone and try to lead or direct someone that they're going to answer and that's just political capital. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. Those are just some initial thoughts. Hopefully some of that made sense or somehow addressed what you're asking. I don't even know. Yeah. I, I think it kind of did. Um, it, it got to what I was like some of my concerns with, uh, we're in a tough position with Indiana because like you had said, it is, it is pretty bad. <laughs> I mean, I was, a uh, I was a big, big time, or I was big into the Republican party when I was in college and, uh, I did a lot of activism type stuff and like, I, I was very happy with it up until 2007, 2008, uh, watching the end of the Bush, uh, presidency and then, McCain's uh, nomination and just kind of the direction that the, the Republican Party seemed to be going at the time, I got really disenfranchised and kind of moved away from politics entirely. And coming back and getting more involved again now here over the last several years and getting involved with the Libertarian Party here in Indiana, because we do have a, a fairly strong Libertarian Party and the GOP in Indiana is just pretty terrible. Uh, we do have a handful of guys that are really good and we've been able to work with them, not so much to get stuff passed as to kill stuff that would have been bad. Uh, mm -hmm. but even with that, like it's, it's been tough. There's still a lot of stuff that, that because the, the, the Republican party of Indiana is just so like across the board bad they'll still ram certain things through, even though it's terrible. And they, I don't, I don't know what we, at this point, I don't know what we do about it, but like, well, I, I say, I mean, just keep being vocal about it. And now I'm remembering the question you asked before you were asking about right-wing backlash from supporting libertarians. But yeah, I mean, so I think that's the importance of the one that you're engaged, that if something's happening at the Capitol, you're like aware of it. Like that's literally step one to paying attention and we don't have that in Iowa, I think. At least I haven't noticed it where a lot of important things are happening and the Libertarian Party has no idea. They're not connected. And if they are connected, they're not like communicating to anything people care about. So um, it's very important in terms of like being public service, serve, like that you're very much responding to the needs of people and that you're communicating directly to the people as much as possible. And so like political power is going to come from leveraging people. And I mean, being able to get 13% of the vote statewide is very significant and represents like a good starting point um, to, you know, just make sure that you're, you're leveraged. And if you had all those voters and you had them, you know, identified and calling their state rep or, or whatever it is, I mean, it would be a very powerful mobilizing force. So, I mean, just, just by the fact that you're paying attention and then just make sure you're not letting anyone off the hook that if the Republican Party does something really awful, you call it out and you ideal. I mean, from my perspective, you attack them from the right where you explain that they're not being fiscally conservative, that they're disrespecting the Constitution, that they're playing into Joe Biden's hands and they're just as bad as the Democrats. You know, that's how you're going to affect, um, uh, you know, trying to affect that Republican base would be, you know, showing to them why their Republican leadership is doing such a piss poor job and, and then hopefully inspiring them to something better. 
And, and that might not be voting for libertarian, but that might be just not voting at all. Or it might be, I mean, it's, it's tough because the, again, the choices are limited and finding the proper way to politically express yourself is difficult, but um, I mean, we need to just figure out a way to do it. And, and, but even then, like all politics being local too. And so even if you use the libertarian party platform and they have a really great position statement on something, like even if you're just connecting with your neighbor and, you know, just because maybe you don't get to do what they want, maybe they won't vote for your candidate. But by virtue of having a complicated discussion on a controversial issue, again, you're investing in a relationship and who knows what dividends that could somehow play, um, especially when I think one of the big advantages of our system is that power really is diffused. And with the pandemic, we've seen how local governments have been very important as well. And even like in my community, something like the uh, what we had a controversial policy that was decided by the Parks and Rec Board, um, which was, a, you know, an appointed board, uh, you know, that no one really knew existed. So it's like, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to get involved in even this. I mean, for, if there's any young people watching, like I got my career, quote unquote, started by student government. And I had a position to be the uh, University of Iowa student government liaison to the city council. And basically, I just that position required me to show up to a year's worth of city council meetings. So just by being there in the room and kind of absorbing that, you get a great front row education to like, okay, how does the city council operate? How do these discussions go? Like, what are the contentious issues? What are people showing up and asking about, you know? Because um, when I won my elections, both of them, I was responding to very specific needs in the community. And the first election, 2018, it was, it was an issue on utility equipment, smart meters, which most voters didn't care about, but enough did that it was enough to swing the election. And I was able to champion that issue just by being involved in the local politics. I wouldn't have known that unless I was actively paying attention to my community and recognized a political opportunity where the incumbent was not serving the people. So just being engaged, being aware is step one. So it doesn't matter if you're engaged and aware as a libertarian or as a Republican or as a Democrat, but again, most people aren't. Most people are too focused on, uh, you know, the Twitter or whatever's going on YouTube, whatever the drama at the Libertarian National Com Com Committee is. Like we're usually so far removed from where the actual policy decisions are happening. And even by, I mean, that's how, when we got the law done to make masks optional in school, Basically, the heroes of that were these two women that just refused to back down from their local school board. And even though the school board would chew them up and spit them out and disrespect them, they just kept showing up and started inviting other people. And then, boom, it created a statewide phenomenon because a lot of other people had the same problem. They just, you know, didn't they needed someone to show them how to persist and how to really assert that. So there's a lot of ways to take leadership. It only really takes one person. Um, to lead. And that's why that's why they need the why the establishment or whatever you want to call these guys, they want to enforce 100% uniformity, because it really is just one person stepping out of line and being a leader shows other people what it means. So like right now, I'd say the biggest act of rebellion is just being as healthy as possible. Because I mean, I do subscribe to this idea that we're under a biological war, and our immune system is under a direct assault. So like what what is more politically powerful right now than not being dependent on pharmacological products? You know, that alone is an act of rebellion. That's way more important than being a Republican, a libertarian or, or anything than that. So but again, you have to be pretty aware and pretty paying attention pretty closely to realize 
that your immune system is under attack. So um, anyway, that those are just some additional thoughts. And then for the right wing people that are, again, just be gentle with them. And that's the thing is like, give room to disagreement and don't put other people down. Like it's the social in-group thing. So the right wing is going to push back if they feel like they're under attack. If they feel like you're on their side and just trying to hold them to a higher standard or that you genuinely want what they want, then hopefully you can reach some sort of agreement. And, and then again, like always focus on what you agree on. And that might not be a candidate, but it might be a local issue where it might be a state issue. And, um, you know, so it's always the thing too, is how we approach these things. And a lot of libertarians I've noticed, they like, because they think they're so smart and they have all the answers and they got it all figured out, they will kind of take this kind of like antagonistic confrontational approach where, you know, just because you know, you're right, you can still act with a little humility and give people the luxury of being wrong or give people the luxury of their point of view. And again, so it's really just social skills. And I think that's what I try to do too. Like even, and I learned the importance of this and I'm still learning the importance of this is that even if someone comes to me with a really, really vicious disagreement, like they hate what I'm doing. um, They think it's terrible. Like I still try to be really nice and respectful to that person to the greatest extent possible. Now, again, if they're like a total viper and if they cross the line repeatedly, then I'm going to be very stern and I'm going to like tell them exactly how I feel. But I mean, I do, you know, for the, I think this is even biblical, like be very gentle and compassionate with the simple minded and um, you know, just again, give them the luxury to believe what they believe. And just by that, they're going to like you more because you're not, you're not actively repelling them by telling them they're wrong or telling them they're doing something stupid or telling them that their political beliefs are going to destroy the country. Like, even if that's true, you know, there's a better way to kind of finagle it and just be socially graceful is my two cents, man. I, you know, that's just my thoughts. Who knows what the best approach is. Well, and that's, that is very interesting. I'm glad you did bring that up. Uh, I, I had actually, so an interesting thing with, the way that the 2020 gubernatorial election went here was it was very much an attack on the Republicans and on the, the Republican governor uh, Holcomb at, at that time from the libertarians, because he was being awful. He, like he did, he did lockdowns. He did mass mandates. He did the whole works. Like he basically went full left wing on yeah. a lot of stuff. And so that was, that was the course of attack for the libertarian candidate. And it got pushed back from a lot of, you know, especially the... But let me just be sure, but it also got the best results ever for a libertarian candidate, right? Right, right. Okay, so there you go. So that's a good metric. So, yeah, I mean, and what was really interesting about that was the the libertarian... So I am not necessarily, uh, while I don't dislike it sometimes uh i also don't necessarily like it when a when a libertarian plays spoiler and uh upsets a republican if if they're keeping a good republican from being successful then i yeah, take it i take serious issue with that but, but then if, even to put, but even that we can all we can argue a lot about what a good republican is and i don't know if there's as far and i correct me if i'm wrong i don't know if there's an actual example of a libertarian denying a good republican a seat Unless you think there might be. So uh, that's, that is funny. Um, I talked to Andrew who does popular Liberty um, over the weekend and there was one. I don't, in, I don't know who that is. Uh, um, 
I'll, you'll have to check him out some. He's, what, yeah, okay. He's a pretty okay. good. He's pretty good dude. But he, he was talking about one in uh, in Texas where he's from that they the libertarian candidate like actively was campaigning on more or less a right wing platform, and it uh, the margin of the the margin of victory for a self proclaimed Marxist left winger who won was less than what the democrat or was less than what the uh libertarian candidate took like by a lot um so that that could have been something that well yeah so so one i one just be sure i like the way you phrase that it could have and then i would be very interested to really look at one the margin of the race itself and then the quality of the candidates and then what did the libertarian do to actually campaign so just because like you're posting on facebook or stuff like Again, I think that's like the thing is like how much direct voter contact did they did and then what that messaging would have been like, because I, again, I, again I, I like the way you phrase it that could have, but I would just be much more interested to really get into the weeds to make one determination or not. But either way, like, you know, then the Republican candidate, I, I, I never like blaming, I, well, one, I don't like taking credit for stuff, but I also don't like blaming people for their own failure and so, like, again, I wonder, you know, how good was the Republican candidate really if they somehow was able to get outflanked on right wing messaging? Like, you know, I feel like there would have been some mistake then or, or uh, anyway, or like, yeah. and Most so there's always a lot more to the story. And even though, yeah, that sounds like a plausible analysis, I would always just want to go those extra two or three or four steps further and just figure out what actually happened. Because I know, like, there are a lot of like registered libertarian voters or voters that vote libertarian that are, are pro-choice and that, you know, do have some really weird beliefs. Like I, I had a, there was a libertarian party candidate in a special election in 2017 from, for the seat I hold now. And like, I've never met this guy. And like, I've tried to call him and talk to him just because like, you know, his, his phone numbers in the voter file, but he's like, I've just no, I have no idea who this guy is. And all he like, that's the thing. He talks crap. Everyone, every few months, he just pops into like talk crap or say something like extraordinarily disrespectful. And I just have no idea what this guy's problem is because he's never communicated to me. Like, so like there are a lot of libertarian voters that just hate Republicans and Democrats and they're just never, they're not necessarily in play. So I guess just don't assume the voting pattern because a lot of people vote in a way that you don't expect them to. And I think libertarians in general, like, again, they, they'll, they'll never vote for Republican and Democrat. And that's why they vote libertarian because they're, they, they're not really in play. So anyway, but I could be wrong too. Maybe the guy did cost them the election and who knows. That's, uh, you know, typically when, when you do see a, like the libertarians cost somebody the election, usually it's not a very good uh, candidate that they, right. Right. So, so I don't take a lot of issue with that. Something, yeah, that, that inter- something interesting that happened here in Indiana in 2020 was uh, the Libertarian candidate actually came in second in, a, I can't remember, it was like 23 counties or something. Like, it was a significant number of counties where uh, like the Democrats have become the afterthought like they are the third they are the third party now, which is good, which is really interesting and uh, and kind of hopeful because with Indiana being as uh, conservative as it is for a state to have people starting to come around like uh, more or less 
seeing that, especially Democratic voters, maybe seeing that the Democratic Party is not going to have success in the state. Like they just, they're not going to have it. And the Libertarian Party could be a, a better outlet, especially with, you know, I, I'm, I'm originally from Kentucky. Uh, and a lot of people that I grew up with are, you know, what you call blue dog Democrats. And they don't actually support anything that the Democratic Party stands for at this point. But they like they have always been a Democrat and they will always be a Democrat. And I think some I think there is some uh, radicalization that has been happening over the last four, four to four to six years where some of those people are starting to look for an alternative because they they really are. They do hold more conservative values, but they don't want anything to do with the GOP. So they'll start to look at the Libertarian Party because it seems to be more of a uh, ideological fit for them. So, so I do think that in in some, especially in this part of the country, there are inroads with with some of that demographic. Well, I mean, so at least in Iowa, like we had, I guess, what would be constituted like a realignment where community again, Obama won Iowa handedly in 08 and 12. And again, against very crappy Republican candidates that inspired no one. And then in 2016 and 2020, Trump performed overwhelmingly well. And areas that had traditionally been very blue, including the district I represent. So I was the first Republican to represent my district in, um, I think, it was like 25 years or something. And, you know, I got a lot of credit for that. But in general, just the rural Iowa in particular. And I think it definitely hardened. I mean, I felt it when I was knocking doors in 2018 after the um, Justice Kavanaugh debacle and how shabbily he was treated and just all the drama there. Like, you know, I, I just I just could feel the tension and just got that literal feedback from people as I was knocking doors that a lot of people were like really offended and very turned off by that. And um, and, and were you know, leaning Republican for that issue alone and like, you know, are driven by this national narrative. But communities in my area like Ottumwa, Muscatine, Fort Madison that had, had been traditionally blue collar, you know, union workers, Democrat voters now seemingly have realigned um, with Republicans and they are not coming back. Democrats are a very culturally left, economically left party that by their very platform seeks to drive people away by, you know, all this senseless moralizing and, and, and you know, victimizing and blaming others like it's you know their their platform is just shrinking where they want that just cadre of like you know um true believers and they eat up anyone who's not you know lefty pure enough so it's extraordinarily creepy um again i don't know exactly what realm a third party can really play because i mean the system is set up to be the first past the post i mean single member districts i think our political voting system more than anything is what kind of necessitates a two-party system and then that's where the nominating, the nominating contests where, and in, in again, most rural or I guess any primary nominating contest, I mean, voter turnout is low and it does give you an opportunity to be involved in those races. That's why I fell in love with the Iowa caucus for the presidential contest, because literally in terms of like one person having an oversized influence in the political process, like try being an Iowan caucus organizing and like your vote literally being with worth like you know, hundreds or a thousand times more than anyone else's vote in the country, let alone like the world. Like it really was, as far as democratic privileges are concerned, 
like being an Iowa caucus voter is pound for pound the most valuable vote out there. Um, so, I mean, that's the thing. A lot of these contests are decided in low turnout affairs and certainly like a primary contest where it typically is like the establishment versus the or the old guard versus the insurgent wing of the party, whether that's the Democrat Party and like what they see with the Democrat socialists and they're I mean, because again with it. So, yeah, America is very polarized between these two parties. But within each, when it, within each party, there's the polarization as well. And that plays out in these primary processes. And, um, and that's the thing where like a lot of these state legislative seats are very safe for one party or other. So if you win a primary, you know, sometimes you can leverage that into a 20 year political career without having to face a serious election, just because, you know, I mean, small numbers, I mean, they, they do matter. And, um, so yeah, there is a political alignment going. I, I, just another thought though, too, because how close was the margin in your governor's race? Like, was there ever like an opportunity where that libertarian could have really spoiled that for the Republicans or no? I don't think so. Um, well, but then hypothetically, because here, this is what's crazy. So hypothetically, and this is true for like, even what I would consider to be like on the polar end of, of, of the Republican party in my caucus, like, um, so I'm the most medical freedom Republican House member. And then the least Republican House member or whatever, like they're still head and shoulders above the Democrats. So that's was very interesting. And so I guess just thinking it through, let's say hypothetically, you know, the Libertarian Party of Indiana did cost the Republican Party of Indiana the governorship. And then you got someone who's an even worse tyrant. Well, then it would be on the Libertarian Party to really be the true leaders and like this concept of civil disobedience or non-cooperation with evil. And that's ultimately what the Libertarian Party should be because I think now more than ever, we need direct action. And I mean, I think Gandhi and Martin Luther King really kind of wrote the playbook in terms of like, I mean, it was coming with these lockdown. I mean, that's what we need. And Rand Paul, I think just got censored for saying this, but um, we need citizens to lead us into not cooperating with the evil dictates that are traumatizing our children that are doing all these terrible things. You know, we're locking down the old people again because, oh, we don't want to challenge uh, the federal money that necessitates that we have to lock people down and all the emotional trauma and like these crazy people that it's like, oh, I had this on Facebook post and this, this guy, he comes in and justifies all this. And he's explaining to me why it's so important that we test people, you know, twice weekly and all this stuff. And I'm like, dude, did, did you ever talk to the, like the patients or excuse me, the, the residents? Like, it's just so crazy, the arrogance. But, um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, that's the political leadership we need in this moment of time. And, and who else is going to do it? And, and I think that's like the thing is like, yeah, uh, voting is important. Elections are important. But so is our behavior. So is our compliance. And like certainly, you know, in the Vietnam War, the people that were standing up for the draft, I mean, they were the real leaders and they were the ones leading the resistance to the warfare state. So, you know, you don't have to be a candidate. You don't have to be there's so many different styles of grassroots activists you can be. You know, I was joking on like the, the psilocybin mushroom discussion is like even just getting arrested and pleading your case in court and like asserting whatever your rights are or whatever your arguments are, because that's basically all we do. Like is we should the law, the law really only says whatever a judge says it does based on however it's being argued in court. So it's like anyway, there's so many opportunities for basically it's not so much what you believe, but what are you willing to do based on those beliefs? And that's what really matters. And that is so much more valuable than your vote. 
um, or a political donation or anything else. It's like people who will truly lead, truly put these ideas into practice, people who will change the world. And I mean, the civil rights leaders are a perfect example. I mean, Martin Luther King was never elected. Rosa Parks was never elected. Um, you know, Harriet Tubman never elected. So, but they had more profound social change than anyone could ever imagine because they practice what they preach and they put their lives on the line to advocate for it or, or to be it. They actually lived it. So yeah, anyway, there's a lot of work to do and yeah, we can, you know, talk about all this bullshit election drama and, and yeah, it would be awesome if the libertarian party was able to oust the Republican governor, but then they would have to take the lead and respond and address the tyranny that they usher in by doing that. So anyway, just throwing a lot more stuff at you. It, Indiana probably would have been a really interesting case study for a libertarian to not necessarily win, but to upset the, the Republican governor and give the Democrat a win, because it would have been the most toothless Democratic governor on the planet, like with the supermajority that the uh, that the Republicans have in the House and Senate here in the state. That might oh have yeah, that would, that would be a very interesting dynamic. Yeah, that, would have, that like, might have actually good. that might have actually yeah. pushed those guys to start passing some of the legislation that they avoid, like constitutional carry, um, actually reeling in executive order power by the governor, like some of the stuff that that the Republicans won't do because they do hold a majority and they don't have any challenge. Like if that had happened, that could have actually been a net positive. And, it would have been interesting. It, yeah, I, I, I would, which then at the same time you get Kentucky, which is maybe not as, uh, not as much of a Republican supermajority, but Republicans control a lot of Kentucky, and they haven't really done much of anything against Bashir and all of what he's been doing. So that's, then you know, then there's that other side of the coin. The work in progress, and I mean, it's just it's creepy how quickly things are moving, but. I don't know. Hopefully it's not too late because again, like the harder, I mean, a lot of politics is reactionary too. And like, that's an unfortunate reality, but it's the truth is that most people, I mean, are just politically involved as a reaction to whatever's happening. And um, so I don't know, at least in Iowa with the harder they're pushing, the more and more people are showing up and getting involved and it's new people who are new to the political process. And it's just because, you know, now it's touching on their life in a very intimate way. And they're like regretting, oh, I wish I would have been involved five years ago because, you know, I, this is in retrospect, it's so obvious to see the evil coming. But when it's happening in real time, it's like a little bit harder to, you know, I don't know. But it's um, so, yeah, I'm still optimistic that we can we can kind of turn things around. But um, again, there, there does need to be leaders. I mean, leadership is a great intangible. Basically, that's the thing is people are always looking to someone for someone else to take initiative. Um, and, and that's just the kind of socialization we have is like, nobody wants to be the first. Um, it is dangerous out there to be a leader. So like, I mean, not like physically dangerous, but like, you know, mentally, emotionally, like I get a lot of slings and arrows and it used to bother me. And then I was able to learn how to get over it. Cause I realized nobody really cares and that it's not really personal about me anyway. It's like, they're just projecting who they think I am. So it's like, not anyway, it's just, it's very strange. Um, but yeah, I mean, no matter what, we have our work cut out for us. And it's clear that, I mean, all these political institutions are failing, um, you know, whether it's the Republican Party, the Democrat Party or the Libertarian Party. I mean, they're all failures in their own right. And um, it's really just the people need to figure out how to become as empowered in their own life. And I think what we're seeing now is, I mean, just the 
what we're we need to really adopt that ethos of the civil rights movement and kind of realize that we are our human liberty is on the chopping block and um you know we're going to need that kind of level of devotion or commitment um to i don't i don't use the word resist i don't like that word but uh but non-cooperation with evil um or firmness and truth. I don't know. I, I, something that I read Gandhi, I started reading a lot of Gandhi in like 2013. And that kind of was like my departure from most traditional libertarian intellectualism. Like I got on this really kind of more Eastern spiritual bent and I've never turned back since then. Cause I think it's like, right. And I am, I have been surprised by how little the libertarian kind of circles talk about the science of civil dis- disobedience. Cause it's like, it's been in society for a while and there's a, it's big in American history, not only from the revolution, but um, you know, the civil, the emancipation movement as well. And then, I mean, all over the world, this has been more or less what really causes like, Demo- you know, governments to topple is that the people just stop cooperating. Um, and it's, it surprises me now how many libertarians are still, you know, drinking Coca-Cola or I mean, whatever, but um, I guess I shouldn't judge them for that because I'm a hypocrite too. So whatever. It, the civil disobedience thing is yeah they, like they want to change policy and and they want to make a a difference like in the right way or whatever but civil disobedience is the the, the way to do it sal uh sal the agorist for uh had a interview with mark claire a couple weeks ago and he talked about you know like gandhi and what he did with the to bypass the salt tax that that uh britain had on on india that they just went and they got their own salt then they didn't have to pay the salt tax and it it basically toppled an empire uh just by well it it took i mean i think it took several years after that and, and gandhi died believing he was a failure because they were partitioning you know pakistan and india but um but yeah they were willing to disobey they were willing to get the crap kicked out of them but then also they did they did follow like a, a set of instructions of clearly communicating the grievances clearly and dispassionately outlining the injustices that are occurring which is a huge step that's like often skipped over is like clearly and unequivocally stating like what it is you have a problem with and kind of drafting that kind of petition to address the grievance and then like and then once that's ignored then yeah you do the next step or whatever but like there is a clear kind of outline on how these things are supposed to be occurring i think a letters to a birmingham jail is probably one of the best things written in american history and ironically it was written while he was in jail you know so like there's a lot of productive things you can do uh when you're in jail being in jail can be great for people you know it's like and anyway so yeah we need to be actively exploring this i'm happy that conversation is being had because gandhi would talk about um like a spiritual or a soul force and he said you know that it only takes if one person could withdraw their support from evil from a deep enough level that he believed the evil would collapse because it wasn't supported um and that's it is we're all we're supporting this evil people are unconsciously going along with it and even a lot of people who call themselves libertarian or conservative you know are supporting it in one way or another um and it's it's really frightening so I, yeah, definitely. Hopefully, hopefully we'll see a uh, a turnaround of that here in the in the near future, especially as things sen- seem to be pushing forward in a much more evil direction. Uh, 
Well, Jeff, I don't want to take too much more of your time. I know you got stuff going on. I appreciate it very much for coming on. And all of this was excellent. I, again, I really appreciate it. And uh, take this opportunity to let you plug anything you got going on or. Yeah, happy to help. Thanks for asking great questions and kind of exploring some of these interesting concepts. And I think that's what we need. We just need more depth because people have like a closed minded and like, oh, this is the only way to do it. And like, again, there's a million ways to do it. And we're all kind of sitting at the bottom of this very tall mountain. So it's really just find a way, you know, find a trail to hike up and do the best you can. Um, people can follow my work at uh, www.peaceloveiowa.com, facebook.com slash peaceloveiowa. Um, look me up on YouTube or Twitter. I'm trying to get more solid content. Uh, we're drafting some legislation in Iowa right now. We want to basically um, affirm civil rights, that civil rights do exist, and that we're not going to exclude people from society based on their you know, medical status. Um, so yeah, we have a lot of important things in the works. Uh, come to Iowa, celebrate the state fair, be healthy, be happy. Um, emotional health is the foundation of physical health. So like, you know, don't be angry. Uh, tell people you love them, forgive people who hurt you. I think um, a lot of respiratory distress is caused by people holding on to grief. There's a lot of things that happen in our lives that we're sad about and we carry it forward and we need to just kind of wash that, you know, because there's so many emotions that are stuck in us. And even the propaganda, like my understanding is scientifically, basically it's like people are traumatized and then this propaganda triggers people's traumas. And they show this too in the DNA that like, you know, generationally, if there was a famine, you know, like there was the famine in the Netherlands in the early part of the century. And like for generations to come, you can find that methylation marker in their genetic code. So the traumas from generations ago, whether that's war, whether that's famine, whether that's a really, you know, whatever it was, that's in your DNA. And so like the media, they flash these traumatizing images and it's like a trauma based mind control. They basically threaten you with trauma unless you comply with whatever they're, um, telling you and it's marvelously effective and that's why you can say that's why people freak out that's why they get triggered because they are in pain because they've been traumatized and then so that's kind of what we're up against that's kind of how the brain control mind washing works so you know be gentle be compassionate but you know there's a lot of snakes out there um so anyway uh love everyone and thanks for the opportunity and hopefully we can all talk again soon definitely thanks for coming on jeff all right see you